Hey everyone, before we get to the meat of the podcast, I just wanted to tell you that I'm going to be a featured guest at Roll20Con. What is Roll20Con? Well, it's an online convention run by my favorite virtual table. It's going to be run for 24 hours starting on June 3rd, and it doesn't have just me. James D'Amato, Adam Coble, Nolan Jones, Anna Prosser-Robinson, Margaret Crone, and so many other RPG superstars are going to be there. You can get all the details at Roll20Con.net. It's a con you can go to that you don't even need to put pants on. All right, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tone Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Intracasso. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. If you've been here before, do me a favor. Go give us a baller rating on iTunes. It helps us a bunch. Seriously, if you've been listening to the Tome Show and paying nothing for it, but you want to help support, go give us a rating. It takes less than a minute of your time. And speaking of ratings, it's time for me to do one of our five-star shout-outs. People who give us a five-star rating on iTunes get their review read verbatim by me on the air. But keep it clean, people. It's a family Dungeons & Dragons news podcast. Today's five-star review comes from listener Snorri Sturluson Jr. I hope I am pronouncing that correctly. Uh, this review is entitled, A True Gem. The Tome Show has been on my radar for a long time, and James Intracasso has brought a dedication and vitality to this podcast and its network that keeps me coming back episode after episode. I credit my current D&D game to him and his ever-quirky, always-insightful roundtable. You guys and gals keep me DMing and keep me listening. Thanks for all you do. This is one of the nicest reviews that we have gotten. Thank you so much, Snorri. This was uh, uh, really made my entire day and made all the hard work worth it. So thank you. You are awesome. Everyone out there who listens, you're great. Go give us a five-star rating. Get it read out loud on air like Snorri. I want to remind our listeners to use the affiliate links over at thetomeshow.com whenever they shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. You just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the Amazon or DMs Guild banners we've got going there. Those will take you to the store, and then you can shop as you normally would. doesn't cost you anything but a click extra, and it puts a couple of copper pieces into the Tome Show's pouch so we can get good equipment, uh, we can keep things running, uh, we can pay for bandwidth costs, all that good stuff. So remember, before you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild, head over to thetomeshow.com. All right, we have a great episode today. First, it's part two of our discussion about the RPG business, and we have some really, really great people. We've got game designer Dan Dillon of the Four Horsemen. We've got designer Teos Abadia, who's also known as AlphaStream. You've probably read his blog or you follow him on Twitter. And we have Russ Morrissey from all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, who is the operator owner of EN World 
insider, trail seeker. He's working on an RPG called What's Old is New. It's an awesome, awesome discussion. I'm really excited to bring it to you. It goes well with the discussion we had on the episode last week before this. Uh, You should check out that one if you haven't already. That discussion is great with Mike Shea, Richard Zayas of Roll20, Neil Powell of the DM's Block Podcast, and Sean Merwin of Encoded Designs. Come on, people. We're getting the best in the biz to talk with us. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Then, after that, we've got an interview with Chris Matney of Trapdoor Technologies. They're the people who made Codename Morningstar, which became Dungeonscape, which became Codename Morningstar again, and is now Playbook. They have a really, really exciting announcement that I'm very happy to share with you. So, why don't I uh, stop talking and start sharing? Here is the first panel, and we'll kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. Who is your favorite RPG designer not on this panel? Dan, Dylan, welcome back to the roundtable. Let's start with you. Hey, it's great to be here. Always fun. Yeah, just a little bit about me. Uh, I'm a freelance RPG designer. Uh, do most of my work for Cobalt Press and a member of the Four Horsemen uh, Writing Collective. Woo! Uh, yeah, yeah, woo! Very busy lately. Very busy with our <laughs> Four Horsemen Presents line. It's, it's a little nuts. <laughs> Pestilence is a workhorse. I've been doing this for a couple of years now. Um, I got into it uh, through kind of a, a, a lucky break and then uh, my association with Steve Helt. Being able to make money doing what I love and, uh, and pay for my hobby uh, by doing it, it's, it's fantastic. And who is one of your favorite RPG designers not on this panel? Uh, sure. So this took me a little while to think about, uh, it, it actually, it's a little funny being a, a third party designer. It was a little while before I even got into looking at or dealing with third party material. Uh, the big glut in the, the third edition OGL had, had a hand in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> recently I've really become a fan of Brandis Stoddard. Uh, he's a writer for tribality and he also has a blog on, uh, called Harbinger of doom, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he recently put up a treatment on the dungeon masters guild of a, a few variant new ranger archetypes for fifth edition. And, uh, I I really like his perspective on things. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but the way he presents it shows that he really has, has put a lot of thought into it, uh, and dug deep into why he thinks one thing or another, or why he changes a rule, which I think is really important when you're running a game for consistency. Um, that, and I love his, uh, history articles on the history of classes in D and D. I think it's important to understand that anytime you look at something in gaming, that's just a snapshot in the evolution of that overall game and what's happening with it. On this panel, we've got some new folks coming to the round table. This is very exciting. Uh, first is, uh, Teos Abadia, uh, who is uh, with us for the first time. Teos, tell the people a little bit out there about your sort of qualifications, what you've done in role-playing games. Hey, thanks. Uh, it's really nice to be on the show. I appreciate it. been listening to it for a long time. Um, I have had the fortune through several projects, volunteer efforts with organized play programs, of coming to catch the eye of Wizards of the Coast and getting to work with them on various projects. Uh, And some of them have been really prominent projects. I was able to write Vault of the Dracolich, which was a game day interactive that took place in stores, Uh, the first epic for the Adventures League season, Uh, some other battle interactive style efforts. 
uh, including something really cool that's coming out at Origins this year. And then I continue to write uh, Adventures League Adventures. I was writing one last night at 3.30 in the morning. I finally went to sleep. <laughs> um, so it's a dream come true, and it really is. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been awesome to be able to work with those folks uh, at Wizards of the Coast. They're amazing people. Uh, recently, I've gotten into self-publishing as well. I've got an adventure that's on the Guild, Adamantine Chef, and probably more. Yes. Oh, I've heard good things about that. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, Adamantine Chef, uh, one of the first DMs Guild pick of the episodes for us. Uh, it is a great adventure. People should pick it up, and it will be linked over in the show notes at thetomeshow.com. Uh, so if you want to check it out right now, go get that direct link. So, well, thank you very much for being here, Teos. Who is one of your favorite uh, RPG designers not on this panel? So this is a tough choice. I can go with uh, great people like Sean Merwin, uh, someone like Shannon Applecline, who contributes so much to the industry. But today I'm picking Rob Donahue, who works with Evil Hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a blog at walkingmind.evilhat.com. And what I really love that he does is even though he works so much for Evil Hat or with Evil Hat, uh, he on his blog and in his tweets will always compliment other systems. It doesn't just compliment them on a shallow level, but in a deep level goes into how enthusiastic he is about different aspects of D&D, of Numenera, of other gaming systems. And that's awesome to see. We need more people in the industry who are quick to compliment uh, what others think of as the competitors, right? Yeah. And so I'm picking him today. That is that is a great, great choice and for a great, great reason. So, uh, well, thank you very much for being on the roundtable today. Looking forward to digging into it with you. Um, and our final panelist for this segment is Russ Morrissey, uh, who probably needs no introduction. But, Russ, why don't you tell the people out there uh, a little bit about your history uh, in the RPG industry? Hello, James. Thanks for having me on. Oh, anytime. So- anytime. <laughs> So uh, my, 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 my main occupation is running uh, an RPG news website called EN World. Uh, I'm also responsible for creating the Ennies, which uh, an award show which takes place at Gen Con every year. Uh, I'm currently creating an RPG system of my own called What's Old is New, which is a sort of fantasy, modern, and um, sci-fi rule set. I run... Insider and Trailseeker, which are two Patreon campaigns for sort of magazine-like articles and adventures for D&D and Pathfinder, respectively. I'm out of breath now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, so yeah, that's me. And um, thank you so much for having me on. Of course, thank you for being here. So, yeah, you are uh, you're sort of like a mogul, I would say, almost uh, in the tabletop RPG industry. Um, you provide a, a ton of opportunities for people to get the word out, to work on their own stuff through your great magazines. Uh, you know, you're creating your own RPG system, which is going to allow me to smash the you know medieval fantasy, modern, and future all together. And I'm very excited about that. Uh, so it's great to have you here. Who is one of your your favorite RPG designers not on this panel. Okay, so generally my tastes go towards sort of rules-heavy type stuff like um, Pathfinder, D&D, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go completely opposite here. I'm going to go for something which is the diametric opposite to my normal preference in, in game design. So um, I'm going back to Gen Con about 10 years ago. I was introduced to a game called Dread. Mm. Mm-hmm. Designed with that game. Now, 
I'm going to embarrass myself here because I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce this, but I'm going to give it a try. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> Epidia Ravachol. Ravachol. I know who you're talking about. I don't know how to pronounce his name either. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So Dread is a very, very rules-like game, and the, um, the resolution mechanic for that game is a Jenga tower. Huh. So what happens, every every time a decision needs to be made, instead of rolling dice or referring to a character sheet with ability scores or anything like that, what happens is you take a brick from the Jenga tower, and the person who knocks over the tower, the character dies. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> the sort of horror game, so, you know, the suspense kind of, as as the tower gets more um, more wobbly, the suspense ratchets up slowly throughout the game, and it's a wonderful, wonderful, really simple, ingenious device. I had a real blast playing that, so that's my nomination. Yeah, that sounds marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> I do recommend you give it a try if you haven't. Oh, that sounds <laughs> awesome! Yeah, I'm going to check that out. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's R E A D. I have yet to play it, and I've always wanted to. Yeah. yeah. It's life or death Jenga, you know? Uh, yeah, I, love, I love that mechanic for a horror game. That is so great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is uh, It is an amazing game. Uh, you guys should absolutely check it out because it is super, super fun to play. Today on the Roundtable, we're talking a lot about the RPG industry and kind of how difficult it is to make uh, a living in the industry. If you wanted to work full-time. So I think the first question really is, why is it difficult, do we think, to make a living in RPGs? The last panel when we talked about this, the consensus was kind of, there are not as many people, you know, we're, we're as people who podcast and design and do the news and all this kind of stuff, we're sort of immersed in the industry. You know, our, our Facebook feeds are blowing up with it, our, our Twitter feeds, um, you know, our, the emails we're getting and everything. But really that it is a super small industry and that that's part of the reason is there's not a lot of consumers who are out there um necessarily supporting this and because of the way the industry is you know there's there's not a ton of game masters you know it's mostly players and players don't have to buy as many books as game masters so it was an interesting uh piece i actually want to start with you teos about why do you think it is so difficult to make a living in the tabletop rpg industry because you published a really great piece on your blog about this, um, which we'll link again over in the show notes. Um, why do you think it is difficult to earn a living in role-playing games? So I think that it has to do with how we consumers value what's being provided to us by the people doing the work. Uh, I asked a series of questions over Twitter with polls, which of course aren't science, but still the results were interesting uh, in terms of what people said around what they thought about the sales levels I had for my adventure that I was putting on the guild. And so I asked them whether they thought that at the time it was, you know, 20 days in, had 33 sales, $82 in royalties for Adamantine Chef. You know, did that sound high, about right, or low? And more than half thought it sounded about right. Huh. So then I asked, you know, how um, long do you think it takes me to write a four-hour adventure? <laughs> and, you know, the options were anything from less than 10 hours to more than 40 hours. Uh, spoiler alert, it's way more than 40 hours. Uh, <laughs> but only a third could see that. And most thought it was somewhere between 6 to 40 hours. And 
a large amount thought it was less than 25 hours. And so it kind of shows you that valuation that the consumers have for things, right? That's why like a $1 adventure sounds like a proper choice, uh, I think, in the market. And then I asked folks who had written adventures, you know, how long does it take you? And more than half said more than 40 hours. And some of the folks that I really admire that I think of as being kind of efficient also said to me, you know, it takes me more than 40 hours. Um, <laughs> so then, you know, you can do the, the calculation if you have, you know, a product and mine is, you know, perhaps priced high and that it's four ninety nine is higher than a lot of the Adventures League uh, adventures of similar length. Uh, and probably similar quality, some of them at least. Um, and so if you come out and do like an hourly rate, um, it's way below minimum wage, right? And and especially if you take the numbers that the majority of people were guessing at, then it's really below that. And so I just people, think people aren't seeing that. They're not seeing what they're paying for and, and, and understanding the effort required for these products. Yeah, and it is, it is interesting. I always think about it, you know, equating... Uh, cups of coffee or packs of magic cards or that sort of thing, what we are willing to spend money on versus what we are not. You know, um, if an adventure uh, could give you, let's say, four hours of entertainment minimum, and it's still most of them, if you were going to buy those Adventures League adventures or something like Adamantine Chef, is less than the cost of a movie ticket, and you're entertaining you know, seven people at once in a lot of cases. So uh, it, really, when you divide it up that way, you're, you know, it's double the length of a movie that you're getting the entertainment value out of. You can use it over and over again, and you're entertaining more than one person for the, you know, less than half the cost of a movie ticket. So it is very, very interesting to see the value that the community puts on things like that. Uh Russ, why do you think it's so hard to make a living in role-playing games? I would definitely agree that it is, without doubt, a niche industry. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not an enormous market. So you really do need to somehow find some kind of way to stand out. I think the easiest way to do it, I think, if uh, anyone wants my advice, it's simply write the second edition of the 7th Sea role-playing game, then launch a one <laughs> So how how many years was it between editions? Like how long oh, do you have to oh, wait? For I, the, I, I, I don't know. How, easily yeah. 20-ish, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that might not still work out as good math. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, you, you, you need to find some kind of, um, sounds a bit business-like, but, you know, selling point, something to stand out from, from the crowd because – there's, there's a small there's a small market and there's an awful lot of people who want to take their hobby and turn it into a living mm -hmm. and you know only only a certain percentage of any industry could realistically do that so when you have a small industry like this that percentage is obviously a much smaller number of people there's also a lot of luck involved oh sure so, you know, some 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 of us get i mean i i feel i was um i was very lucky in that um eric noah handed over his website to me so 16 years ago and without that bit of luck there's a good chance i wouldn't be here now <laughs> sometimes opportunity just comes by and you know it's it's, it's a lucky fortuitous event and you, you you grab it and and run with it but other than that i think really it takes an awful lot of perseverance hard work you just sort of keep plugging away find out what it is that's going to make you stand out from everyone else and just keep at it, you know, month after month, year after year, and just don't give up is the way to do it. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about the the hard work and the luck, you know, and a lot of people, I think they make their own luck. You know, you were handed a website 16 years ago, but here you are 16 years later, and you have grown it and you've worked on it every single day. You're working on weekends, you're working, you know, you, you are really, really have grown en world and it was great that eric noah had already started it i agree um it's the same way i got this podcast i let jeff greiner uh <laughs> host it for seven years by himself and then i said hey do you want some help and he took me on uh so um you know i i definitely understand and i think you're absolutely right about the workload too that once you get an opportunity you need to really really work hard um and then I hope mean, it pays uh, off <laughs> yeah for me personally i kind of it was all, it was, there was also an element of, you know, necessity because what I did was I quit my job and said, right, I'm going to do this. And when you have absolutely no choice, <laughs> oh, yeah. find a way to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. That I imagine that, that will do it. It was sink or swim. What was it? Yeah, right. Burned his ships to motivate his men. <laughs> <laughs> when you've got no choice but to get up every day and, you know, do that all day, every day, mm -hmm. you will do it. There are people though that have made this their career and we often hear about them you know years down the line when they have suddenly had terrible health issues or a fire burns down their house or something of that nature and they have to call on others for help because they don't mm -hmm. have the funds to cover those situations right yeah and and that's a problem that that you know having this payoff full-time to where you can be okay later on in your life uh, this this industry isn't doing that right mm -mm. yeah unless yeah. you're really fortunate there are a couple of people who've made you know their millions and stuff and or even their hundreds of thousands but they're few and far between no that's a that's a really good point and actually i think it was wolfgang bauer talking about uh full-time writing or you know breaking into to rpg design as a career and his first piece of advice was marry someone with health insurance <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, and I, you know, I think you are absolutely right about that, Teos. You know, they, the the people who do manage to make a living at this oftentimes are just getting by for years right. and years and years. They're known designers, you know, they, they do well, people like their stuff. And it becomes a question of, you know, how many people are, are getting their stuff for free? How many people are, are pirating a PDF or, you know, um, getting something online or sharing with their friends and, and that kind of thing? Uh, and how many people are, are just being underpaid because that's what they have to sell their products at. Otherwise, no one will buy them. You know, it's, it's the only way to make a living is to kind of, uh, make a, a lower income living, which I think you're right. Nobody, who has provided joy to many, many people should have to then also, you know, um, uh, get terrified if, if they get some sort of health problem or if they, you know, their house burns down. And, you know, the inevitable reality is we're all going to die at some point, right? And um, we're all going to have health problems before that. So people like to be prepared and have security. And Dan, to your point, Wolfgang Bauer is a guy who is a father who has a full-time job who also has, for the last 10 years, has been running Cobalt Press. Um, so, mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know how he's not going to drop dead of lack of sleep or, or something eventually. Um, you know. <laughs> uh, so Certainly it, lately, with the publishing side. Almost nobody is actually rich in this industry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, maybe with some exceptions like Peter Ackerson or someone like that, but very, very few people are, you know, any better than, you uh, know, reason, you know, comfortable. 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and Dan, what, what do you think? What do you think it is about um, the tabletop role playing game industry that makes it hard to earn a living, you know, uh, going at it full time? Well, I, you know, it's it's already been said twice very well, so I'm just going to chime in on it. Uh, it's just a small industry, right? You know, those of us who are plugged into it, we hear about it all the time. We we live and breathe this stuff. But outside of that circle, it really doesn't get that that wider mainstream sort of appeal. So generally, when you talk about doing something for a career, you're talking about being hired by a company that does whatever it is you do, right? Mm-hmm. And the options for doing that in gaming are very, very small, right? There's only a handful of actual, you know, companies that full-time employ people with, you know, health benefits and, you know, all the, all the stuff that we come to think of as uh, going along with a full-time career. So, you know, you've got Paizo, you've got Wizards of the Coast, you've got a handful of other publishers and then everything else that, you know, most people are going to break into are going to be third-party outfits, which are much smaller, and they just don't have those resources. So, you know, you're looking at people who do this stuff freelance with their free time while doing another job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I look at people, and, and you know, I've had the, the fortune to sit down and talk with some just incredibly wise people on the subject. Uh, Owen, Owen Casey Stevens is a big one from uh, Rogue Genius Games and Paizo. Uh, we were talking at Gen Con last year, and... and he really outlined what he does and what he had done with Rogue Genius to make it by before he got hired at Paizo. And it took him years and years and years to build up hundreds of titles to where he would make enough off the sales of all of these titles that he spent years putting up on, you know, uh, OBS shelves and, mm-hmm. and all that to actually get by. And even then, as you said, it's just getting by. A big expense comes up, you know, something unforeseen happens, and then that, you know, your your life is in a real state of turmoil. So you can get that sorted out, and m- maybe some people can, maybe some people can't. And even uh, Steve Helt, uh, Famine of the Four Horsemen, he's working on, he's basically doing writing full time now, but he still has some p- other part time work on the side to help make everything meet. There aren't those solid full time career opportunities uh, that people think of when you think of having a full time job. Yeah. You know, there was a, a great piece on EN World, um, uh, a series of discussions, and I think uh, it led to some sharing information by Pelgrane and others that was talking about industry rates, what you pay uh, authors. And one thing that came out very clearly from that, right, is is these outfits are paying terribly, right? Sometimes it's a penny a word or less than yeah. that even. Oh, yeah. um, but they really can't afford to pay more, mm-hmm. which is why I go back to kind of how consumers are paying, right? Because it's not that these are money grubbing outfits that aren't paying authors what they should pay. They, they don't have the money to pay them because they're not getting in the money they need to from the industry. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, it is a, a smaller industry. I think, uh, $25 million is, is what it takes in, which is small. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that is true. Like when the, it seems like top tier designers, you know, very, very top of your, your game, you can make 10 cents a word, which is the starting rate in a lot of other industries. If you're going to be a writer, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, so I think that is, uh, it's just difficult. And I know a lot of people, um, do some great things, uh, like they, allow you to um you know retain the rights to your work which i think is always great because then at least you can do something else with it afterwards um especially 
artist, that's a, that's a wonderful thing you can do. Yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, Russ, that's one thing that you do with um, your magazines, right? You, you allow people to uh, retain the rights to their work, which is pretty great. Yeah, yeah. That's artists and writers. We allow people to we – we ask for a year, mm-hmm. basically. We say, you know, for a year, please don't publish this elsewhere. Give us a chance to make some money off it, and then after that, do what you want. It's yours. You can have it. I mean, that's, that's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's not a lot of people who are doing that and offering, you know, uh, uh, a, a livable word rate, <laughs> um, which is, which is really, really awesome. So what do you think, you know, what, what do you think would be a fair thing to ask consumers to pay? You know, I, I know D and D is, is free now. You can get the basic rules online. You can get a bunch of monsters and uh, magic items and stuff if you if you check out the SRD. Uh, and I know I've seen a lot of people online say this is great. This for me was the only way I could play D and D, which I think is awesome. I think it's great that role playing games are available to everyone because of their open game license and and they allow a lot of creators into the industry and things like that. But at the same time, I know then that. As we get older, as consumers, we do get jobs. We do have disposable income. We are able to afford those things. A, a lot of uh, people who play the games as well. Um, I think one of the things that people need to understand is like, yeah, uh, maybe it would be nice to pay more. But then Wizards of the Coast raises the price of their core rule books to $50 and it's, you know, all hell breaks loose essentially yeah um <laughs> so uh so what do you guys think is a is a good way is this kickstarter you know crowdfunding patreon model is that a good way do you think to make a living and let's start with you russ because you're running two uh patreon campaigns right now i am yeah and I've, I've had um i think it's five kickstarters as well so mm-hmm. um i think what you have to consider is that a lot of the, especially the electronic format stuff, other than the sort of hardcover books, mm-hmm. cost less than a cup of coffee does. Right, they, right. They really are inexpensive compared to just the everyday things that you spend money on every day. Mm-hmm. So when you're writing something that's going to entertain four to six people for, I don't know, four hours a week for a month, Mm-hmm. And, and 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 you're getting that value for less than it would cost to buy a cup of coffee from Starbucks. I I, I personally think that's fair, and I think that's wonderful value. Oh yeah, yeah, that's amazing value. You know, it really, really is. Um, and yet, uh, Teos, you know, you have seen that people don't necessarily think of things in that way. Um, why do you think? Uh, I, I, how do you think we shift that thinking? If we look at uh, an adventure like Curse of Strahd, $50, that's actually great value, right? Mm-hmm. The art is fantastic. The layout's fantastic. The writing is just amazing. The quality of that is so good. Um, and we need to be willing to pay more from that. I think it takes education. I think companies need to focus on this. Because one of the things that's happened is the entire industry has sort of duped its own self, right? If you look at a lot of these companies, they're not really making money, even Mm -hmm. as companies, let alone individuals. And we hear success story after success story that turns out to be false, right? FASA sounds like an up-and-coming great RPG company, and then it goes bankrupt. TSR, I mean, it's just the road is littered with these kinds of things. Um, and And we have to kind of stop kidding ourselves 
when we work in the industry and say, I'm sorry, this can't be pay what you want because it isn't worth what you're going to pay me. It has to be more. And here's why. And we need you to do this. And somehow that's what Kickstarter does. Mm-hmm. And, and there's something really interesting there, right? You know, Mike Shea, who can raise more than 10,000 bucks to write a source book that I bet if that same product were on the guild would get, you know, him very little money. Hmm. And obviously he's got a reputation, well-deserved. He's an amazing writer. Um, but there's something about that Kickstarter equation that changes the mentality and makes folks support things properly. And, and we need to do that not just through Kickstarter, but industry-wide. I don't know how. <laughs> I think it's kind of clever in that it, um, it almost markets itself just because a Kickstarter is an event. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you're, when you're raising money for something on Kickstarter, people seem more, um, more willing to get involved in the fundraising event than they are necessarily to head over to um, drive through RPG. Mm-hmm. And pick up a seven ninety nine PDF or whatever. <laughs> but they'll they'll go to Kickstarter and they'll they'll you know back something for twenty twenty dollars. And I'm not one hundred percent sure what the you know what the psychology behind that is. But I think Kickstarter has definitely tapped into it and worked out exactly how to how to make that work. Yeah. Well, with a Kickstarter campaign, you feel involved, right? You feel invested in the creation. Yeah. It's not yeah. just it's not just, "Ooh, I see this thing that looks neat. I'm going to pick it up and see what it does." No, there's, you know, I, you get ongoing input on what's happening, you know, for various backer rewards and backer levels I've seen. You might even get actual tangible input on the the course the book will take um take uh cobalt press's tome of beasts the backers all got to submit monsters and 20 of those make it into the book right so you might get a design credit it kind of gamifies the process doesn't it yeah yeah absolutely uh and so you're it, it kind of creates a metagame around the actual product itself yeah that's a good point it absolutely does, and that, and I think there's also momentum going there. You know, the the more money that Seventh C got, the better it the seemed more, to do. Yeah. You know, because Those it. Super miniatures ones do the same thing as well. Exactly the yeah. same thing. Everyone oh, yeah. wants to see them hit one million, two million, three million, just because that's an event. That's exciting. That something happens. Right. You know, along along those lines, I've recently uh, asked to be part of something called Arcana Rising, mm-hmm. and. It is a convention that Robert Aducci is pulling together yeah, where yeah, yeah. we're also writing for it. Those of us who are involved are helping write and plan these adventures, a series of adventures set in the Forgotten Realms. They'll be available on the Guild later. And if you go to this convention, you get to play in a castle. <laughs> and it's all the, all the meals are provided. All of your costs, once you get there, are provided. They're really cool-looking rooms. You have top-notch, hand-picked DMs. Uh, that are going to provide a sensational experience, and it's pricey. And when he first came to me with the idea, I sort of had this part of me that said, "Ooh, you know, I want gaming to be accessible. Am I okay with the idea of charging?" Oh, it is. I think it's like over two thousand, like two thousand two hundred or something like that for for the for the uh, convention. But you know, all of these things are covered while you're there, and you get. Uh, various, uh, you know, like a, a, a bag of goodies and all kinds of things that are included, really cool stuff. So, you know, take a look. Obviously, it's for somebody who has to have available money to spend on this, but there are a lot of people who do. What they don't do is they don't use that money, right? They somehow have extravagant phones and phone plans and all kinds of other 
cool stuff, but what they say they love more than anything else is RPGs, and they don't pay into the hobby the way that they claim to love it. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, I came around, I said, you know, this is a great thing because this industry needs money and it needs to give money to good people. And there's some great people that are participating in this project. Um, and, you know, like we need actually more of these kinds of things. We need more million dollar Kickstarters and so on mm-hmm. to happen to inject cash into this industry because it's not otherwise a functional industry, right? To grow the industry, money is really required because otherwise people are going to get burnt out. People are going to go do other things. You know, how many designers have left to go work in the world of computer games? Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, or, you know, actually use their degrees. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. The problem is that D&D and RPGs aren't competing with each other, though, are they? They're competing with entertainment, you know, of all kinds, mm-hmm. every yeah. kind of distraction under the world. Oh, yeah. So they're competing with movies and they're competing with Netflix and they're competing, you know, all this sort of stuff, which is really easy to get hold of and possibly requires a lot less um, effort on the something on a new person's part to get into. So yeah. the growing industry, I think, you know, that's, that's, that's a real challenge getting past that hurdle. I like to think that some organized play stuff like uh, Adventurers League and Pathfinder Society can help that, but it's hard to break it out of the game shop where it happens. You know, it's hard to push it out and draw new people in. That's that's really gaming is still more of a word of mouth sort of hobby. You do yeah, it yeah. because you have friends that do it or you have parents that do it, right? And, and that's how very, you get it. It's very segmented in the small groups of four to six people rather than. Yeah. We're like you know, cells. Like, you know, like, I don't know, football or, or, or a sport or something. We'll have gatherings of thousands of people regularly going to watch a game or whatever. But when you come to like a, a tabletop game, it's always going to be four to six people who probably don't know the forty-six four to six people you know on the other side of the on the other side of the street who are playing a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's there's, there's a lot. There's not enough sort of major sort of networking going on there. Yeah. And I think, you know, I do think that there are certain things that are helping, um, you know, people are creating more and more, uh, bars and stuff where maybe you could go and, and play D and D and that kind of thing. And, um, certainly the rise of, uh, the actual play podcasts and actual play videos, I think have helped some people get into it a little bit, you know? Yeah. It's been amazing. Yeah, yeah. Will Wheaton has has really uh, certainly Titans Grave. You know that did gangbusters. That critical role, yeah, yeah. Critical role, that kind of thing. Um, Dan, what, yeah. what do you think as somebody who is a designer who does design work every single day? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I think one of you know we were talking about this before, and you were saying one of the things that happens to you is people approach you and ask you what your rate is, and you're not even sure what to say because you want it to be affordable for uh, them, but you want it to be yeah. a good deal for you as well. You know, um, I, and uh, as somebody who has just sort of started doing this kind of thing, I find myself in the same position. You know, somebody asked me to send them a bid, uh, and I wasn't sure at all uh, what should go into that bid or, you know, what, what their own resources were or that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, it was a chance to, to fight for myself. What do you think are some of the things designers should do when they're faced with a question like that? 
Yeah, so this is tricky for me because I'm still right there, hip deep in the mud, uh, trying to figure out <laughs> what a what a fair rate is. Um, and and this is interesting, uh, particularly talking to my wife and some of the other uh, my friends in her profession, software engineering. There's this culture of you don't talk about your pay, at least in in business in the U.S. Um, and there are a lot of places right now where it's getting back, it's getting some attention that they're starting to fight against that. And people are trying to openly talk about their salaries. It's difficult because sometimes it's hard to price what our work is worth. And a lot of this goes back to what people are willing to pay for it. Right. So a third party publisher sometimes can't afford to pay you more than one or, you know, one or a couple cents a word, uh, one, because, they just don't take that much money in and two because there's always a slew of new designers willing to do it for that cheap so it's it's very hard to decide what is uh to strike that balance between making it worth your time and not you know bidding yourself out of a job Mm -hmm. um uh, I, had a, I had a long talk with Wolfgang Bauer just recently about this on how to price rates for conversion, particularly from, say, Pathfinder to 5th edition. And, and that is difficult because it's very, very subjective. You know, one one project may be mostly fluff and not a whole lot of rules text. Another one may be lots of fluff, lots of rules text, but with a lot of references sprinkled in everywhere. So you have to go through absolutely every word and make sure you're not missing any references. Um and so it's it's hard for me to pin down like you're you're a new designer uh you should ask for x cents a word right mm-hmm. uh, it's it's very difficult and and I'm still trying to figure that out on my own um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I mean you know like the the one cent a word for design as far as I can tell that that's sort of you know you should be expecting to make that little at least you know, straight off. Now, once, once you grow a reputation, uh, with a given company, then, you know, you should feel comfortable if they don't offer more, you should feel comfortable asking for more, um, particularly depending on how busy you are. Uh, because at some point, if your work is good and the companies are coming to you and asking, you know, are you available to work on this project? Uh, you, you should feel comfortable saying, you know, I'm, I'm pretty busy right now. I really can't, uh, well, I mean, I, you know, it's not worth my time at this level. And, and at some point they'll recognize the value in your work and, and, and you'll start getting, you know, higher rates, uh, that are commensurate with the work you can produce. Uh, going back to Owen, uh, Owen Stevens, he said, uh, something pretty important. And I try to keep this in mind. There are three traits that publishers look for when they work with a designer. They look for someone who is fast, someone who is good. And someone who is nice or easy to work with. You really need to, ideally you want to be all three, you've got to hit two of those. If you're not hitting two out of three, you're not going to get repeat work. So if you can hit two out of three of those, ideally three out of three, and start building a reputation for yourself as someone who turns in on time, who turns over consistently high quality work that doesn't need a whole lot of extra effort in terms of editing and development. And if you're someone who's easy to work with and and not just a pain in the ass, then that reputation will start elevating your value as far as what a publisher will pay you. Nice. Nice. Well, I mean, I think that's great advice certainly for everybody to hear who is uh, interested in, in being part of the industry, you know, and I think it's really good for consumers too, who are listening to this podcast to know 
the amount of work that does go into the things that are happening and that there are people who are dependent on the money. It's not, um, you know, it, it's not like a neat side hobby. It is, uh, Teos just said he was up until 3.30 in the morning yesterday uh, and both of these guys left because I assume it's not an uncommon thing for <laughs> uh, It's funny. I, I was up till right about 3.30 last night as well, finishing up a turn-in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, two, two days ago, I was up till 5.30. Yeah, um, because the thing is, you know, my full time job is being an environmental consultant um, slash IT, and I have to do that. That's what pays bills. And then I have a family, and so a lot of times, by the time I finish job and my family responsibilities, it's late in the night, and that's when I start writing. And so it has to be worth my time. And recently, I was speaking to a couple of of guys who are either. Uh, ex wizards or other prominent names, and we were talking about something we'd like to do together, and we're throwing around ideas because we can't figure out how to make the money work, and it would be a project that lots of people would be excited about, mm-hmm. but you know it's not going to be sufficient to just put it up on the guild. That would not work, especially for these folks who are so talented compared to me. It's just not going to pan out, and and that's a shame, right? But that's that's what what consumers get if they're not paying enough is then they don't get these opportunities coming their way right right well and And the dm's guild split i mean as far as deals on the internet go you you maintain your exclusivity supposedly you maintain the rights but it's exclusive on the dm's guild you can't ever go share it anywhere else so you don't really retain the rights and then um you know you you also are only getting 50 percent of the cut uh which when you are the person uh doing layout and providing the art, either paying for it or drawing it yourself or, you know, getting public domain art, which is pretty crappy, um, you know, and doing all the writing and design and stuff. Uh, that is not a great deal either. Though, you know, I mean, if, if you're getting paid a cent a word and you're writing an adventure that's 10,000 words, you know, that's going to give you a hundred bucks. Um, it is possible to make a hundred bucks on the guild Mm-hmm. And you're not working through anyone else, right? Yeah. Making a hundred dollars yeah. on the guild for someone with talent is, is I think, n- very attainable. Um, so hopefully we can start getting out of penny a word rates and and higher. I mean, I you know I would say that you want to be above. Realistically, you you want to get paid twenty dollars an hour, not some tiny fraction of minimum wage. Um, yeah. But that requires that that you can get you know, twelve hundred dollars. If you're going to spend 60 hours working on an adventure, you need to get at the end, you know, for that time, $1,200. And assuming you don't want to wait, you know, five years to get that, people just simply need to pay more. Yeah, and, just... and you're not going to get that by someone paying you five cents a word, and you're not going to get it on the guild currently. Mm-hmm. There has to be a shift in the industry for that to happen. Uh, and it's it's interesting because uh, that you talk about a shift in the the attitudes. Even talking about Kickstarter, I've run into people. I'm going back to a project that I've worked on, so I'm kind of stealth plugging it over and over again. I apologize for that. Uh, working on the talking to some friends of mine about the Tome of Beasts, I've had people who balked at paying thirty five dollars for you know uh, or forty or fifty, whatever it was, for the four hundred plus monster. <laughs> hardcover book, right? And, and and I had to stop for a minute and figure out if they were serious because <laughs> right. I don't understand how you can look at a book that size with the production value that's going into it, with the art, which is just phenomenal. And other com- uh, companies are producing this level of just quality work too with stuff that is play tested and developed. And this isn't just stuff slapped together and thrown out there, right? 
and and to for someone to balk at thirty to fifty dollars for paying for a book of that size, I just don't understand where that mentality comes from. Well, I think also we're sometimes uh, the industry is is selling products, and I think this happens a lot in PDFs to people who may not read them. Mm. And we're going for sort of these mass sales at a low cost, you know, the, the bundle of holding type approach. Like, you know, this sure. is so amazing. You know, like, realistically, you're not going to read all of that. It would take you a year, right? right. But right. the value is so great. And, you know, that's fine for bundle of holding. It does its thing and it, it charity and so on. But I think realistically, the industry itself should be pricing things for people who really want the product, right? And that's yeah. what we're seeing, I think, happen a little more through Kickstarter, where these prices can come up. Because they're really reflecting the value of this product, and and maybe that will just continue to happen, right? Maybe the guild forces people to pay more than a penny per word. Maybe Kickstarters encourage people to raise the price of their the sticker price of their products, and so on. You know, don't yeah. aim for the person who's going to stick it on their shelf. Aim for the person who's going to use this and really value it. Well, Russ, you know, you have talked to lots and lots and lots of people in the industry over the years. Um, you know, you've covered this forever. What do you think your take is? Do you think that they would like to be able to raise their prices? I mean, obviously, right? Any business would like that. Um, but, you know, do you see a lot of burnout amongst people who have been in the industry for a while and are, who are still trying to make ends meet and that kind of thing? When it comes to going back to per word rates, which we were discussing a few minutes ago, the first thing that's really important is make sure that you do get paid something. Yep. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, this, this uh, work for exposure malarkey is just, you know, it's not. No, 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 no. Don't, don't write without a contract. But um, I think, I mean, we'd be bandying about sort of one cent a word. And I, myself, I think that's too low. I personally don't ever pay anyone less than three cents a word. And I think that's low. Mm-hmm. You know that's not that's not a lot of money, but that's that's my bare minimum for a for a starting writer, and I kind of think you know that's what I can afford. That's right. the best I can do, and I try and raise that as soon as possible. So it will go up to four or five cents a word very quickly. If, if you are like like you were saying, like making one cent a word, you're not you're not making a living wage, and you're not you're not literally not going to be able to make a living doing that as a primary occupation. It's just impossible. You There's have no four hundred one k. No. <laughs> yeah. So you have you have to get those figures up somehow. I mean, the Kickstarter model is maybe an, an opportunity for a lot of people to self-create their own stuff. And if you if you do well on Kickstarter, you can certainly make an awful lot more than that, and make you know more than a living wage. Totally. Not, not everyone not everyone gets lucky on Kickstarter. It's it's a you know it's, it's a bit of a gamble. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you can see, you know, you can see some great projects that have been uh, left behind or, or incomplete or never fully funded or whatever on Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, you know, the the what you were saying about three cents a word. One of my very first jobs was writing for you uh, <laughs> for uh, Insider Magazine, and um, you know, I was ecstatic to be making three cents a word, and then I was ecstatic but, but when yeah, I do three cents a word, and you keep the rights. Right, exactly. No, that's fantastic. It's, you know, which I you know, I still don't think that's you know, that's not amazing. That's, that's... I would. I would agree with you, but for this 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 environment, that is that is easily one of the best starting points there is. 
Yeah. And like yep. you said, it's, um, you know, it's, it, you retain the rights and that it is what you can afford, which I think really does get to the, the heart of the conversation. And what Teos has been saying since he published his article is, uh, you know, it does fall back a little bit on the consumer to understand their, the value they are getting for what they are paying is already amazing. You know, 400 monsters. Yeah with art for all of them that's been play tested that's laid out nicely that you know is going to be great because it's a cobalt product for even for 50 bucks is amazing that it's more monsters than monster manual in the same price you know um, you may have touched on that earlier on you know how much of this stuff do people necessarily use though because yeah. people people collect things i've so, got I, I don't know how many games i've got i've got lots a lot of games and yeah. i certainly haven't played 10 no I, i've played less than 10 percent of those games <laughs> yeah. and I probably never will there's just not enough time in time in the universe to play all those games so to an extent i think you know you can get sort of 400 new monsters are you going to use them necessarily sure yeah no i think i think you're right i think you're right i have a lot of role-playing games on my shelf that i've played once or maybe never and then i have a lot of supplements for the games that i do play all the time that i rarely crack open so there there certainly is that as well um you know at the at the same time as a dm though when you get even a really good idea from one book it's worth that right like yeah sure yeah you know, as fans of the hobby, if if you read an adventure that you never run, but it's full of great thought-provoking ideas, it's worth it. If you um, uh, if you if you have a monster that you borrow or even use parts of it to create your own, and you run an amazing gaming session, mm. it's not worth the full fifty, but it gets close to that. I mean, you know, these are yeah. so these products being not just gaming material, but they're also you know, the best ones are, are reading material too. Yeah. You, yeah. you get pleasure from, you know, sitting down and just reading the thing, let alone just playing it. Yeah. And, oh, absolutely. And paging through. And I have to say, in the case of Tome of Beasts, I will be using the heck out of that thing because oh, even yeah. though, you know, the monster manual is... <laughs> you take even the basic D&D monster manual and, and you could easily say that, you know, one DM will never use every single monster in it. They're going to use an awful lot of it, though. And then, you know, how many other DMs will use all the monsters they didn't use? And, you know, creating large supplements with general appeal is is a good thing but you know i look at my shelf with my third edition stuff on it and i think i shudder to think at the percentage of material in those books that i haven't actually used (laughs) (laughs) sure well we certainly want to know what people out there have to say so please please come hit us up in the show notes for this episode at the tomeshow.com or find us on facebook at facebook.com slash the tome show and let us know what you think about the rpg industry and why it's hard to make money in this thing uh you know before we go gentlemen i'd love for people to learn where they can find you online dan dylan let's begin with you sure uh i'm on facebook just you know facebook.com slash daniel.p.dylan uh i'm also on the twitter at at Dan underscore Dylan underscore one. Uh, and then you can find uh, some of my work weekly on the Four Horsemen blog that's currently hosted on d20pfsrd.com. Excellent, excellent. Uh, and people should definitely go check out Dan's stuff. It is amazing. So I can't wait for that Toma Beast to see all of the Thank crazy so monsters much. inside. Um, and uh, Teos, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at AlphaStream. 
And also my blog is alphastream.org. That's right. Look for the flump. Uh, so, <laughs> and, uh, and you'll know you found the right person. Uh, and Russ, where can people find you? I'm behind you right now. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me at uh, enworld, which is E-N-W-O-R-L-D.org. Um, I have a tweet to uh, Twitter, uh, which is at Morris. Um, you can find Insider at uh, patreon.com forward slash Insider, which is E-N-5-I-D-E-R. Um, yeah, that, that's where you can find me. Excellent. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the roundtable today. Thank you very much. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having us. It was a great time. Thank you all. All right. Now let's roll my interview with Chris Matney of Trapdoor Technologies. Sorry for the poor quality of recording on my voice. Luckily, Chris does most of the talking, uh, but I do apologize. I was recording in an enormous room and uh, it just did not work out for me. All right, everybody. I am here now with Chris Matney of Trapdoor Technologies. Chris, welcome back to the roundtable. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, James. It's great to be back. Well, so last time we talked, uh, Chris, there were a lot of things going on. Uh, you were on the roundtable pretty heavily, I guess, uh, I want to say about a year ago. We were talking a lot about Codename Morningstar and then Dungeonscape and then uh, Codename Morningstar again and then Playbook. You had a, a, a Kickstarter. Um, you have this amazing product, uh, right? And now you have a super, super exciting announcement about it. So, but when last we talked, um, it was a conversation about the Kickstarter. Uh, but now, uh, Playbook is the latest iteration of this awesome gaming technology. Um, so, before we get to the big announcement, why don't you tell people what Playbook is at the moment? So Playbook is really what we as, as long-time tabletop role players have always wanted to have as, as a utility. For, for me as a, as a game master, uh, you know, I'm looking for a, a tool that helps me prep, uh, helps me run adventures smoothly. Uh, it gets back some of that time I spend looking up rules during a session. Um, helps me keep track of, of everything from... Uh, monster hit points from session to session to long-term goals and uh, undertakings that the, the the party may may be uh, working on. So you know, there's a lot of things to keep uh, keep track of. There's a lot of bookkeeping, and really, what we're trying to do is is take that out of the way and give people the ability to sit down and play the game and get the most out of the hours that they have. Uh, as a player, uh, the same is true. Rolling up characters. I mean, there are character generators out there. Um, but what we're really looking to do with the, the, the player side of the, the picture is uh, take the, the character sheet, integrate it with the rules, make it linkable, make it, uh, make it so that I can look up and find out how to grapple for the 50th time or you know, do some other task that uh, maybe is always there. The spells are at my, my fingertip. My companions are at my fingertip. And also provides some fun things to do during the game. So, you know, secret messaging and, and things that um, right now, you know, you have to suspend disbelief as you pass a note across the table. And it's much cooler to be able to, to, to share documents, share items, uh, share things with, uh, with, the, with the GM and with other players. So really, uh, you know, there's that simplification of the bookkeeping. There's, there's being able to play the game. Uh, in a more streamlined effort, getting that hour back every session that we waste looking up things. And that's really the, the, the goal of, of, of Playbook. And, you know, I think that um, 
I think that a lot of folks uh, will relate to this, but and I've been run, running uh, Pathfinder campaigns for probably a decade. And once we get to about 10th, 11th, 12th level, oh. you know, it, the, the games, the, the pace of the story slows down because everybody spent all this time building these really cool characters. They want to be able to use it all. Every little last, uh, you know, special feat, special ability that they have, and it's just impractical. And so the goal of Playbook there is to really let us play 12th, 15th, 18th, 20th level characters and be able to have fun and play it at that same pace that we play our low-level campaigns at. Yeah, and I love that. That is a big thing. I love playing at high level because the stories you can tell are so grand and epic, and you get to fight cool creatures that aren't goblins and kobolds, right? But then you kind of uh, everything takes longer because you're you've got more spells. Everybody's got more options, and oh, I forget what this ability does. I need to look it up. And oh, this this spell, right? How do I cast this one? Because I only cast it every third session, and it's complicated, and I forget. So I love that aspect of it quite a bit. I love that everything is linked together. I love the little touches like the secret messenger, um, you know, that, that you can pass secret messages. It's almost like it's a rules compendium, a game table, a character builder, and a whole bunch of other neat things you can find on a computer rolled into one. Um, and now there's a really big announcement for Playbook. Uh, so I think we've made the, the listeners wait long enough. What is the big announcement? Uh, the big announcement is a licensing deal that we just signed with Paizo to become an officially uh, licensed uh, product for, for for Pathfinder. And so uh, where the the old version of the tool used just the, you know, the PRD OGL rules, now we have everything. And we're really getting some great support from the, the folks out in Seattle on the, uh, the tool that will have uh, artwork. It will have all the Paizo adventures that we want to have. And it really takes the, the, the tool to the next the next level to where any, even the hard, most hardcore uh, player and GM will be able to satisfy their, their needs. So um, it, it's very cool. It's been a, a long time in the works and we're very, very excited to, to announce it today. And uh, we're starting work towards the, the release of the product. Wow. So what does this mean then? That means like we're talking all the fixes. I could go in, I can build uh, you know, uh, any character with all of the officially licensed Paizo options now, right? Which is great because I have to say, building a character uh, with all of the available Pathfinder books is an overwhelming prospect, especially if you, uh, you know, want to get some of the better options for your character or that kind of thing. There's so much out there. Having it all sort of contained in one place seems like a great idea. <laughs> yeah, and... and putting it all on the tablet. So I've got everything I need. I, I can remember going to a session uh, a few years ago as a player and taking four books with me um, and thinking, this is ridiculous. Why do I have this, this big pile of uh, books just as a player? Um, but I needed them for different pieces of the reference. And so now having everything on my iPad, you know, is, is amazing. And, and I actually go to sessions now with just an iPad, even if I'm running a session um, and, uh, new players are always like, well, don't you need more stuff than that? It's like, no, it's all in here. Um, power of, uh, of, of technology, if you will. <laughs> Which is, I mean, amazing. Uh, I lug books around all the time, and uh, it, it starts to hurt the old back after a while, you know? Um, and it just yeah. makes your life a lot easier to just have it right there. Uh, and you can also access Playbook uh, in a pinch on your phone, right? 
not in this current version, but it will be available um, in later versions. Obviously, we wanted to maximize the layout um, for the tablet. And, and really the idea is that it, when you look at the Playbook application, um, you'll see that it's laid out very much like everyone runs a campaign. You have you know, your adventure book, and then there's a slider off to the left that brings my maps, and a slider off to the right that brings my notepad with all my monsters and tracking and stuff. And so we've tried to emulate that um, on the, the tablet. To move that onto the phone um, becomes a much more challenging type of a task because then I've got a much smaller amount of real estate to get to it. So characters are easy on the phone. Running an entire campaign, tougher on a phone. Creating an entire campaign, probably not going to happen on the phone. <laughs> the most dedicated uh, typist, phone typist ever. So, um, so yeah, the, right now we're going to be releasing the first version of the product on the tablet and then moving on from there. So let me ask you a question. Uh, you know, Pathfinder's been out for a while. There's a lot of digital products that uh, players who play Pathfinder may already have. Character builders, um, campaign trackers, um, you know, map products, virtual tables, all that kind of stuff. What makes Playbook something that uh, if a person already has all these other digital products, why should they invest in Playbook? I think the, the there's a couple of things that, that, that sort of set us apart. First of all, um, the, the Playbook product is mobile designed from the ground up. And so a lot of the products that are out there are really designed as, as laptop, as, as browser-based products. And they're very limited in a lot of things that they can, they can do. And so the fact that we don't have that baggage kind of uh, I shouldn't maybe baggage is too tough a word, but we don't have that legacy uh, code that we have to deal with. We've been able to do a design that's really set to maximize the experience and make it seem as much like uh, you're running an adventure the same way you've been running for years, but just everything exactly at your fingertips. Click on any link and it goes to wherever wherever you need. So I think that that's something that, that people will respond to. Um, we're not trying to replace uh, miniatures. We don't have a VTT component uh, to the playbook, although we're, you know, we're talking with folks to, to integrate. But we want this to be as the replacement for the big box of rules and the character builder integrated in a package that lets the, the GM share stuff, lets players do logbooks, share their logbooks. Um, if you're in organized play, uh, run the organized play sessions. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that, that we've been able to tie together into a single package that, that the other tools can't. Um, but I mean, we're not living in a, a, a vacuum and we, we realize that there are other tools out there that are perfectly good at what they do. And, you know, we'll let the, the, the audience decide whether the, the playbook is the way they want to go. And I think that once, once they've played with it, they'll uh, start moving in that direction pretty quickly. Sure. And now that it's got all of these awesome, awesome options inside, it's going to be hard to not check it out. So when we're talking about uh, published adventures, um, what kind of adventures are we going to see uh, when everything is ready to, to go and launch? Uh, what adventures will be available through Playbook? So we have a version of Playbook that's, that's already out in the Apple Store. Uh, it's called Playbook for PRD. Uh, at our last conversation, we were doing the Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's sort of two ways to look at the Kickstarter. One is we could ask for a little bit of money. Uh, we would have gotten a little bit of money, 75000 100000 whatever. Um, but that wasn't enough to actually do the project. So we decided to ask for everything we thought we needed to get it uh, all the way out the door, which was a lot more, and, and the Kickstarter failed. Um, you know, talking to folks at our 
have had Kickstarters where they've asked for some upfront money but didn't have enough to get to the finish line, uh, a lot of them are ruining that decision and said, hey, we should have asked for the whole thing up front. I agree. So, and it's also, you know, uh, I think it's fair of you to do it that way for your consumers um, because how many people would invest, get you to that small goal, and then if you never completed, right, the, their money, what they funded, doesn't actually show up. So that makes perfect sense. Right. So, you know, after we finished the, the, the Kickstarter, uh, we sort of regrouped. The, the company has, you know, four different product lines that we, we make and sell. Playbook is just one of the things that we do. So um, we have a storybook product. Um, an example is uh, we have a product out on the market called Andre Libram for the Ed Greenwood group. It's all his Helma novels. And um, there's, you know, an interactive content to those. So we have the storybook. We also have form book and, and uh, learning book, which are products that are for commercial use. So while we were sort of uh, post Kickstarter going through and making some money doing those types of things. Um, we're all gamers. And so we're back there going, okay, we've got to do playbook. We spent all this time and money. Uh, let's just, we, we all play Pathfinder. It was the original system that I wanted to, uh, to launch with anyway. Um, and so we started doing the PRD and got a version put together about August, took it out to, to Gen Con, uh, showed it to, uh, to Eric and the team from Paizo. They were interested um, and so we, we went ahead and launched the, the playbook for PRD. It's out there. You can download it and see it, but it's got third party adventures, uh, some good stuff from AAW and some other folks. Um, and it has, you know, sort of the core rule book and, uh, whatever we could get from the, from the OGL. Um, but the real goal was to get Paizo interested in the product. And then, you know, the last seven months have been negotiations, contracts, and all that kind of stuff, which led to the exciting announcement that we have today. Um, and so the idea with the, the launch of the playbook for Pathfinder, so the playbook for PRD will be replaced by the pl- playbook for Pathfinder. Anyone who's spent money on the other will get credit towards, you know, the new application. So it'll be a, a transition that's, that's very smooth for folks. Um, we will probably not launch with everything. Uh, we will launch with probably, you know, a month or two months worth of, of material, and then we'll continue to add to it. So there'll be some of the, uh, like, Rise of the Rune Lords type uh, adventures that are going to be coming out uh, for uh, the, the initial launch. And then hopefully we'll be uh, launching just right alongside all the other partners as new Paizo content gets out. The, the entire technology base that we have is around rapid publishing. So we have an automated publishing uh, platform that that generates these uh, these integrated uh, files, and so um, we can publish very 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 quickly. We can take the source files from from Paizo and very quickly have adventures out. So we'll be publishing at a lot faster rate, uh, trying to get caught up on all the back catalog and stuff. But Paizo, the Paizo folks are helping us decide you know what they think the biggest hits will be, and those will be the first ones coming out. And then there'll be uh, all the the core rule books and all their glory will come out as well. Uh, with you know all the the artwork and stuff that makes the Paizo product beautiful, um, you know I, I, between you and I, I don't I'm not going to stop buying paper books. <laughs> I've got a whole library of paper books, so even though I'm not going to haul them to the game, I'm still going to have them because I'm going to want to play with them. So I don't think this is really going to replace the the paper strategy paper book strategy for us. But what it is doing is making it a much more playable game, and I think that's pretty exciting. So content will be delivered. You know there'll be some initial content on launch, and then we'll be incrementally pushing content out past that. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect yeah. sense. It sounds like what you've created is a tool you want people to be able to bring to the table. Certainly, they can peruse content on it as well at their leisure, um, but you know, it's optimized for being used at a table, be it uh, sitting in a computer screen and your friends are all on webcams, it sounds like it'd be helpful, or if you're there in person, all sitting around the table, it sounds like it's great there as well. So yeah, it's it's a it's a server based solution, so it works fine if everybody is in different cities and you want to share stuff around the table. You share it the same way. The, the mechanism to do that doesn't require you to be physically close, um, but you know I, I, the the around the table features are really kind of the uh, the bread and butter of what we're trying to do. Absolutely. So if people, you said they can already check out a version of Playbook. Um, it won't have all the officially licensed Pathfinder material in it yet. But if people go check that out, what is the cost to them for downloading? So Playbook is free to download. Um, obviously, content you have to pay for. Um, currently, there is a mechanism for uh, paying for the actual software that comes when you, there's two level up prices. So you can play with characters up to a certain level and then you pay a price and then you play to another level and you pay a price. And we may or may not continue forward with that as the model when the, the playbook for Pathfinder launches. That's still something that's, that's being discussed. Um, but the actual playbook itself, you can download for free. You can look at the OGL rulebooks for free and you can look at some samples of adventures and then go from there. Which is pretty great. I mean, people can check out your products and, you know, um, I see like no risk at downloading it, checking it out, seeing how it works, and then deciding if you want to use it or not. So I think people right. should definitely do that. Uh, when is your plan for launching uh, with Pathfinder material? The, uh, so the, the launch for Playbook for Pathfinder to replace PRD is something that we're still working on, all the details. So uh, obviously we've We've just announced the, the partnership. We're going through all the branding uh, and all of the the, uh, the other discussions that need to be to be taken uh, into account. So, um, from a technical standpoint, um, we're we're very close to being ready to go. And now it's just a matter of making sure that the Pizer folks are happy with what they're what they're getting and and sending it out there. So, um, certainly want to get it out there sooner than later. But right now, I, I don't have a definite date I can give you. And we'll be doing another announcement once that date is. Is available. Is this a, a tool GMs can also use to design things? Can they get in there? Can they tweak a monster if they want to? Can they design a magic item? Can they use playbook to do that kind of thing? So we have a, a second phase to the, the playbook uh, product called the Forge, which I think we probably talked about the last time. We did. We did. Yeah. And the Forge is designed around creating content uh, and especially creating content within the uh, the structure of the playbook so that uh, if you build a an adventure or a campaign or you've tweaked monsters or whatever you can share those um, and then hopefully we'll be uh, allowed to uh, let folks put those up in the, the marketplace and sell them if they want to sell them if they think their own personal adventures are are good enough they can they can put them out there that was something obviously that was not in the wheelhouse with uh, with our deal with Watsi they were not that was not something that was going to be done. So we were revamping the forge to be more inclusive of the uh, folks who want to share and, and publish their content through the playbook or publishing platform. That's what we do. So we're pretty excited about being able to, to bring that. Um, so right now you can do some tweaking 
and that will continue to increase. And then we'll do an official Forge launch with version two of the product, um, and that will have uh, those future features for for building the uh, the campaigns. And, and really, again, going back to our discussion of phones and mobile and stuff, um, there'll probably be a web interface for people who, like, like you and I, probably build most of our, our stuff you know, in Word files on our, our, our laptops, and then uh, be able to move those quick over to playbook so that we can integrate it with the rule set and uh, publish it out. So um, so a, a feature that we have within the engine of our pl- publishing platform is called the parsing engine. And the parsing engine knows all these keywords. Now it knows all these keywords for Pathfinder and it knows where to go uh, for those keywords. And part of the value proposition of automating the publishing is rather than you as the author having to manually link every single keyword to where you think it should go, hit the the parse button and it parses everything out and makes those links for you. So if you've used like the the publishing uh, tools they have for Amazon and stuff, you can put links in if you want to type them in each manually and take, you know, hundreds of of, of hours of time. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're bringing to the the publishing side of the, the, the picture is really built on our commercial platforms that we've been running for, uh, for publishing all along. Let me just get this straight then. If I, let's say I publish an adventure and I have the, you know, I, I have a couple of monks in there who are big on hand-to-hand combat and I put the word grapple in a bunch of times, uh, does that mean that uh, when the adventure is published, I would be able to click on the word grapple and it would take me to the grapple rules then? Yeah, wouldn't you want that? Yeah, absolutely I would want that. So, and <laughs> as, as, you know, a uh, a person who has an eye towards like publishing product, and it sounds like you'll be able to eventually maybe even put things out through Playbook. Um, the fact that the service does that and I'm not going to have to spend hours linking things up and then checking the links to make sure I link the right thing, uh, that is huge, hugely helpful. Yep. I mean, to, to take a look back at the, the, the legacy at Trapdoor, when we first started building our first Storybook product, which was basically an ebook reader um, with interactive features, like you know, it, it would you could tap on a character, show you a bio of the character, and it show you the actions the character taken up to that point in the book, but no further, with links back to go back and reread the pieces you didn't remember. Um, the first time we did that and ran a book through, it took us 50, 60 hours to do the links. It was, I mean, for a full-length novel. And after we'd worked up through the parsing engine and worked on that technology for a while, that process was really down to maybe two hours, and that was reviewing, going through and making sure that it, it caught the links you wanted it to catch and deleting ones that may have been false positives. You can't get them all right, but you can you can do a pretty good uh, job at saving yourself a lot of time. So, And that's what's really – playing the game is fun. Writing adventures is fun. Figuring out five million links is not fun. No. And so, you know, we want to take – and really focus people's times with the current playbook on, on being creative and having fun at the table and, you know, on the, in the, in the future playbook, uh, focusing on uh, being creative, coming up with great plots, coming up with interesting characters and getting rid of all the bookkeeping. I'm sure you're immersed in Pathfinder right now, and you're probably not thinking about anything other than the immediate future for playbook, but is there a chance that we might see playbook for other systems like fate, or Savage Worlds, or something like that. If this Pathfinder thing is successful, it would be great to have this for for other things. Um, you know, uh, do you see not necessarily with without giving any deadlines or anything like that? 
would you like to make playbook for some other systems as well? So, yeah, I mean, we've talked to other, other companies about um, building a playbook for their, their rule system. And we have some, some people who are very interested in, in doing that. Now, we're a small team, so, you know, we, we, we're trying to keep as focused as possible. One of the lessons from the, the, the original uh, uh, Dungeonscape experience was that, you know, we need to keep focused on, on just doing one thing very well. Um, but, yeah, we've talked to some folks. Um, I have systems that I would love to do. They have systems they would love to have done. Um, so uh, if, if the playbook is successful, I can easily see it moving out because all the base technology around adventure and campaign management, party management, the library, the stores, all of that's already built. So you're really talking about a new rules engine based on the new rules and design around the character sheets um, for uh, you know display of, of, of information that are rules based, and that is you know not the largest piece of the pie. So it's, it, it would be it's not trivial for us to do it, but it's it's reasonable for us to do it for for other systems. And you know we have already built the the product for for D and D, and so you know there's a uh, there's an OGL version for fifth edition out, so we could theoretically. Uh, scale back what we have to to meet those demands as well. Um, but right now we've got a great partner with Paizo, and we're really really focused on making them happy, making us happy, making customers happy, getting you know integrated with organized play, the conventions, and everything. So it's going to be pretty focused on just Pathfinder for uh, the near future. Sure, sure, yeah, and uh, like you said, there is a. Even if uh, you can quickly upload uh, things <laughs> and get them published, there are so many products uh, to, to go through to get caught up on um, that I imagine uh, it's going to be all Pathfinder for a while on Playbook, which is not a bad thing. Very, very great, very popular RPG. Is there anything that, uh, that you've sort of learned in your past experiences working with Wizards of the Coast or that kind of thing that you're bringing into this partnership to make this partnership uh, a success? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there, there's there's a million lessons learned along the way. I mean, as you're describing the sort of Morningstar to uh, Dungeonscape to Morningstar to Playbook, you know, you know, you, you think of the the line uh, to be a straight line from beginning to end, and of course, it's just twists and turns, and eventually ends somewhere. Of course, uh, and, and so we should think- say that that is just part of running a tech company. Like, you know, that's all projects go through things like this. (laughs) This is the fourth startup that I've been involved with uh, in some capacity or another, and they've all been exactly like this. Um, So, you know, I think the, um, uh, I think the, the the lessons that we've learned with, with wizards, I think the biggest lesson that, that, that I learned was we were originally designing Android, iOS, web simultaneously with a rule set that hadn't yet been designed, um, trying to meet the deadline of the launch for their product and stuff. And I think that, as I was saying before, that focus is really important. And so, the, the, you know, a lesson, a, a good lesson we learned was, let's get the Apple product out there, get it just perfect so that people are really responding to it. Then we can just clone it off to Android. We can clone it off to Web. We can bring in the Microsoft platform if we want. Um, and let's don't try to do that all simultaneously. Uh, <laughs> even though uh, you know we we so with this announcement, we're you know we're staffing up on the the, the playbook side of our company. Um, obviously, we have infinite amounts of work to do, um, an infinite opportunity to to uh, to do well in the in the market. So 
um, with that, we're going to try to keep ourselves very focused. And you know, it's it's hard because people come in and they, they sometimes our our uh, customers have great ideas. You should do this. And it's like, oh, yeah. And it's so easy to just say, let's spend the next two weeks doing that. Um, and then you look back at the at the actual sprint lists and you're going, yep, nope, that's not going to be in the works for a little while. So, you know, I think that that's one of the things that, that we've learned. Um, the the Watsi folks are great to work with, uh, you know, on, on the ground, day to day, week to week. And we'll just carry forward with uh, the business with the, uh, the Paiso folks in, in much the same way. They're they're very busy folks. They're very talented. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, they have been doing it well for a decade. So I don't really see that we're going to have, have many issues with uh, working with them. Totally. Totally. Yeah, they, they are good, good people. Uh, and for the record, uh, Playbook is my favorite name for this product so far. So uh, I really like it. <laughs> Thank you. I actually keep up with Playbook myself, which uh, I'm not a marketing guy, um, but um, that was a, a name that we weren't able to use in our previous incarnation, but I thought that it was a, uh, a, a good, good name for the product because it really describes what we're doing. And with our storybook products, you know, uh, sometimes they get renamed under Libram being an example, um, but sometimes it's a storybook. And so I think that, that you know, the storybook playbook, learning book, uh, form book, it's sort of you got the idea now. <laughs> You know, it's a trapdoor product. Exactly, exactly. Well, and uh, for the record, I am a marketing copywriter, and I love the name Playbook. So, Excellent. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we are very much a feedback-driven company. Good, bad, or indifferent. We we want to know what people are thinking. That's the only way we're going to improve the product. And so, we're really hoping that people will see the product, play the product, and tell us what they think, um, and get involved with you know the community around the product. We're going to be doing uh, you know, Facebook. Uh, Twitter and all the other social media pieces. We've got someone dedicated to that and listening to what people are saying. So I think that getting feedback is an incredibly important piece of the puzzle for us. We do a uh, an agile development, and so we move quickly, and um, we're able to stop on something that's a problem very quickly and, and, and move in a direction that works. So we're hoping that our, our fans will help us with uh, – playtesting the product a little bit and giving us some suggestions and stuff. But uh, obviously we're incredibly excited about getting, getting the announcement with, uh, with Pi. So it's been a long seven months of listening to lawyers and I'm really excited moving forward with writing code and uh, uh, getting some adventures ready to go. Absolutely. Well, uh, it is certainly uh, been a lot of hard work on Trapdoor Technologies end. Um, and I can't wait to see what comes out of this partnership. I, I have a feeling it's going to be great. If people want to follow you and, and Trapdoor and, and uh, find all of your lovely social media accounts and give feedback and get involved and check out Playbook, what's the best way for them to do uh, Probably the Facebook page is the, the easiest way to do it. Uh, there is in the app ways to contact support and stuff for, for problems and stuff, but um, I think the, uh, the, the, the Facebook is probably the, uh, the best way to get in touch with us. Awesome. And we will link uh, the Facebook account over at the, in the show notes at thetoneshow.com. We'll also link a lot of other uh, ways that you can reach out to these people, Twitter accounts and, um, you know, and, uh, and a link to the app itself. If you have an iPad, you should download uh, the SRD version. Uh, and start checking it out. So it's just a taste of what is to come. Um, so uh, this is really, really exciting. I'm really excited for you guys. Uh, like I said, this is well-deserved. Um, so thank you so much for being on the roundtable today, Chris. Thanks, James. It's been fun.
Looking forward to our next conversation. Yes. Yeah. Please come back when we have more to talk about. It will be shorter than a year and a half. I promise you. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. And before we go, there's a segment we've started doing every week here on the Roundtable. We present a new DMs Guild product, a DMs Guild pick of the episode to highlight the work of some great authors who are on there. This week's DMs Guild pick of the episode is Death in the Cornfields by Merrick Blackman. Merrick Blackman is an amazing designer. He's also a reviewer. He reviews a ton of different products. You guys should totally check him out. But check out this adventure first, Death in the Cornfields. It is a dollar for an awesome horror side trek. A scarecrow in a field can be a little unnerving. But what if the scarecrow is actually a young man close to death? Why has he been left to die? And what dark secrets do the farmlands hold? This short adventure is perfect to use for a party traveling through any rural setting, like Barovia. Maybe great as a side quest during Curse of Strahd. It's a running time of one to two hours and is great for fourth level PCs. But honestly, the story is so good, you should grab it no matter what level your party is. I love this thing. It is a tight four-page, well-written, creepy encounter. Pick it up. Death in the Cornfields from Merrick Blackman. There's a direct link over at thetomeshow.com. All right, that is going to do it for this week's roundtable. I'd like to thank my panelists, Teos, Dan, and Russ, and my guest, Chris Matney. You can find me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. There's tons of free resources for your D&D 5e games there. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. Special thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. And hey, if you like this show, please rate The Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.